Hello, welcome to this uh, Institute for Government event on a new statutory role for the civil service. Uh, and I'm delighted to be physically here in the IFG uh, building for the first time for me chairing uh, an event since uh, the pandemic. And we've got a, a small and uh, hardy uh, band in the room here who have braved uh, tube strikes uh, to come and join us. Um, we've also got a fantastic uh, panel to talk about the uh, subject today. So the way this is going to work, I'll introduce the, the, the panel, uh, then I'll say a few words about two reports that we've published today, one uh, on a new statutory role for the civil service and the second on better policy making. And then we will have a discussion, a debate, uh, hopefully some sort of differences of views and commonalities of views um, with the panel over the course of the next hour. Um, my name is uh, Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director at the Institute for Government and I lead our work on the civil service and policy making. So this uh, event is manna from heaven for uh, me today. Um, uh, panel wise, uh, really pleased to introduce uh, Polly McKenzie, who is the chief executive of Demos and uh, used to be special advisor to Nick Clegg. Um, uh, so, you know, tell us how to rule the world, uh, uh, Polly, and we'll uh, take your advice on it. Uh, uh, Ian Watmore, um, who uh, uh, has had a whole suite of roles in the private sector, but also in the civil service, uh, permanent secretary, uh, and most recently was the uh, first uh, civil service commissioner. So the closest thing uh, the civil service has to a sort of oversight uh, uh, organisation. Um, and Lord Herbert, uh, Nick Herbert, uh, joining us from the House of Lords, uh, former Minister for uh, Policing, also very relevantly for us today, the um, chair of the Commission for Smart Government. Um, which has produced some really interesting and I hope complementary uh, uh, thinking on the uh, subjects that we're talking about today. We promised you Dame Margaret Hodge. Uh, uh, she's been uh, caught up in Parliament. Apparently there's a bit going on there at the moment. She's uh, uh, had to take part in debates and uh, amendments on uh, Ukraine and other matters. So uh, apologies, um, but we're looking forward to uh, having her again at the IFG soon. So uh, uh, before we get into it, a um, uh, little bit of housekeeping, principally uh, that we want your um, questions. I, I will uh, say a little bit and I'll put a few questions to the panel, but if you uh, see the button on your screens, or for those of us obviously uh, uh, here, raise your hands, uh, want your thoughts, your take on it, uh, your reaction to the reports that we published today, but also the uh, questions that, that come up in debate. So do please uh, submit questions uh, via Slido, and if you can, say uh, who you are and uh, where you are uh, submitting your question from. So particularly in the absence of uh, Margaret Hodge, that gives me a little bit of extra space to uh, pitch the, uh, the reports that we've, uh, that we've published uh, today. So the first one, and uh, we were just saying before we started, um, there, were, there were people literally smelling the reports. We've got, we've got uh, physical copies of these reports, again, for the first time post-COVID, uh, so uh, very pleased to, uh, to, to have those. First one is new statutory role for the civil service. I've been thinking about this for uh, a little while, uh, prompted by some of the uh, uh, challenges, some of the difficulties, some of the um, things that don't seem to be working quite as well as they might in government and the civil service, and a subject that the IFG has circled around and addressed in all sorts of different ways over the course of the last 10, 12 years of accountability. So thinking about confused accountability uh, in the civil service, uh, does it lead to worse decisions? Does it make it harder for Parliament and the media and the public to hold government to uh, account? 
Um, our argument in the paper is that um, confused accountability uh, leads to worse decisions, and it means often that consequences are less about what a minister or a civil servant has done and as much about power relationships in the system uh, and uh, um, handling, as we used to call it in my time uh, in, in the civil service. Um, there's also a question about the civil service's uh, long-term capability and resources and how well they are managed. Uh, do senior civil servants really feel accountable for the, that stewardship role uh, working to ministers, um, but also uh, the question of how far they have a role sort of distinct from ministers. We talk quite a bit in the report about the history of civil service accountability and the uh, highways and byways of that. Um, there's also a question of cross-government working, uh, age-old problem of uh, how well uh, departments can coordinate uh, with each other, particularly for those really big uh, wicked issues like, uh, at the moment, obviously net zero uh, and uh, levelling up or regional uh, inequalities. Um, uh, the uh, federated structure of the civil service, long-standing constitutional position, of course, you know, tradition and history of departmentalism, very important that individual permanent secretaries are held to account by, uh, by parliament, but that um, also creates problems running the civil service, quote-unquote, from the centre. One of the interesting questions for us today is how far the head of the civil service, the cabinet secretary, should or can run the civil service from uh, the centre. Um, and there's also something for me, and this is the ex-civil servant in me speaking, but about um, confused accountability almost leading uh, the civil service to, to lose confidence and to not have as much confidence in itself as an institution as it might. Uh, and uh, the, some of the thinking behind the work that we've been doing is uh, uh, to try and explore the question of how a uh, uh, a more, uh, more clarity of accountability and more oversight of the civil service might then lead to um, uh, a more confident civil service that was uh, uh, able to uh, transact business within its sphere of responsibility, whatever that is. Of course, all of that, um, uh, there's, a, there's a delicate sort of um, precise movement there trying to balance civil, servant, civil service responsibility with quite proper ministerial accountability to parliament and a uh, democratic uh, uh, lock on uh, government and the levers of power. What we don't want to do here at the IFG or anywhere else is entrench a sort of perma-state that can't change and is impervious to the, uh, to the democratic wishes of uh, the population. Which is why we've come up with uh, a statutory role for the civil service suggesting that uh, uh, you reaffirm the stuff that is already in existing legislation uh, in the Constitutional Reform and uh, Governance uh, Act about the civil service being impartial, uh, a permanent institution. Uh, we're ex we've explored some questions about a statutory objective for the civil service, what that might be, uh, and what the responsibilities of uh, the, the head of the civil service, the cabinet secretary and permanent secretaries might be. We're also suggesting uh, a new board for uh, the civil service, which um, would have a composition that we've hotly debated, um, but would include some form of ministerial and uh, 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 non-executive and current and former um, civil servants. Um, and we think that would, uh, it wouldn't change the world um, and it wouldn't be the uh, end of all the, um, uh, uh, these, these debates, but we think it would be a significant step forward about holding the civil service to account without undermining ministerial accountability, give Parliament a more coherent uh, role uh, and a closer relationship with civil servants and more uh, direct scrutiny, improving some of those core civil service tasks, policy advice, but also 
uh, risk management, uh, the, the, the running of the civil service, and strengthening the role of the head of the civil service to um, set and enforce uh, benchmarks for performance across the whole of the civil service. So really interested in that discussion. I mean, some of the debates that, uh, that we've grappled with and, 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 and tried to get to some form of answer on is the, the central departmental tension, as I talked about. Um, permanent secretaries are their own accounting officers and accountable to parliament, um, but there is... Uh, in our view, a sense that the, the centre doesn't have enough authority, whether that's the Cabinet Office um, or Number 10, live debate at the moment. Question about the role of the Treasury in that as well. But there, there is a tension here. Have we, have we got it right? Um, second, this, uh, I touched on this, but the, the board that we're proposing, uh, so we wondered whether the Prime Minister should chair it, another minister, an ex-Cabinet Secretary, a non-executive, somebody else interested in uh, take on that. Uh, and then finally, this... Uh, distinction or lack of distinction between policy advice and implementation, long-standing, uh, I mean, uh, question about to what extent there is or should be a distinction between that and the risks live in my mind in, in, in doing this work between uh, uh, creating too much of a separation between, um, between the policy world and the implementation world, which is one of the things the civil service and governments and ministers have tried to break down and, uh, and, and, and increase the permeability between, um, between policy and, uh, uh, and implementation. Which leads us to the second report, and I'll be uh, very brief, I've already spoken for, for too long, um, on better policy making. Uh, why has the government found it hard to get to grips with the uh, trickiest uh, policy difficulties the country faces? Um, Short-termism, lack of policy knowledge, uh, poor implementation, poor cross-government working, and Whitehall parochialism. And we're recommending some changes in that uh, second report around stronger accountability, um, more expertise, reducing the uh, churn or staff turnover, uh, changes to, to incentives, more of an anchor model for civil service careers. Uh, and then finally, some reforms to institutions and processes, the way cabinet committees uh, work uh, and how uh, government addresses cross-cutting issues. As I say, I've already spoken for uh, too long uh, on that. I hope we can dig into um, some of these issues in the discussion um, with the panel, and I'm really looking forward to your, uh, your questions as uh, well. So uh, let me, uh, let me uh, start and pick up with um, uh, uh, Lord Herbert, um, Nick, uh, and uh, ask you to uh, kick us off with some reflections, perhaps, from your work with the Commission for Smart Government. You've argued for a range of uh, government reforms. Uh, What's your take on the, sort of the, the accountability arrangements that we're proposing today? How would you uh, constitute um, them? Do you think uh, the board uh, can meaningfully hold civil servants to account for an objective uh, for uh, new responsibilities for, for very senior civil servants? Uh, uh, are we, are we, are we um, uh, barking up the right tree or the wrong tree? Uh, Nick? Um, well, Alex, first of all, th thank you very much indeed for uh, allowing me to join your panel. I'm so sorry not to be able to join in person. I'm just waiting uh in the house of lords uh, for a potential uh, vote um i i wanted just to say um uh how how much uh i and the i'm sure uh, members of the commission for smart government would would welcome uh the two ifg reports i mean i think they're really good really interesting reading uh, we see lots of areas of overlap and i think we agree um with almost all of the diagnosis of the uh, the problems that you identify um, in 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 both in both reports, and I also think that the the fact that the IFG is publishing these reports is another welcome sign of the way in which the debate has moved on from uh, the 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 debate that 
that we were having, you know, about two years ago, which was uh, around the notion of Whitehall Wars, that this was all about uh, ministers versus civil servants, uh, uh, frustrations being expressed on both sides. I think there is um, uh, much more sense now of um, a collective ambition to um, address uh, some of the issues, uh, to rise to some of the challenges, and that was reflected in the in, in the government's own um, uh, plan for government reform uh, and 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 so on. So um, I, I think. The, the, these are two major contributions to that debate, and, and really welcome. I think there are some there are some points of difference with 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 what the Commission for Smart Government uh, has been saying, and I think it's just worth drawing attention to that. I mean, our report was called "Strategic, Capable, Innovative, Accountable." Those that those were the sort of four words we chose for w what we thought the government machine should look like, and um, clearly, um, your reports uh, are very much looking at. At, you know, at least two of those big areas in relation to capability and and accountability. Um, the bit that feels to me to be missing is 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 I think the that the harder bit about how you ensure that government is properly strategic. Uh, and perhaps that's something that's if you like harder to to legislate for. Um, and I I think my my one of the one of the things I'm sort of grappling with in relation uh, to your report is whether whether I think it's a good idea uh, for there to be um, a statute uh, at all. Um, I mean, I, th I certainly think it's an interesting idea, but the two issues that sort of strike me about it, the two potential problems are, firstly, if government is going to legislate, it really needs to know what it wants to legislate for. And uh, I mean, this, this report might be clear about it, but I doubt the government is. So it feels to me like, embarking on the endeavour of putting the civil service on a statutory footing of being very clear about where the accountabilities lie i don't think that i don't think there is that clarity uh, at the moment so that kind of um introducing a bill then would expose it to the sort of real politic of parliamentary scrutiny and debate where there will be a lot of competing views about um about things including you know the thornier issues around role role of uh, political advisors and so on and i think unless there was a prior debate uh, frankly, uh, and um, a lot more discussion about what it is exactly that a statutory underpinning would achieve, and I'm sceptical about that. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I agree with the diagnosis, and I agree with what you're trying to do, but I'm just not clear why putting it on a statutory basis would 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 achieve what we we want to do. Then I think you could just encounter the the, the real politic that that the, the whole thing could become bogged down and and quite. Uh, derailed. And then just the other thing I would just want, want to say is I think it, around this question of government being more strategic, there are clearly some very interesting things going on. You know, in response to a crisis, uh, the office of prime minister has uh, or is being set up. Um, and, and, you know, we think that's a good idea. Um, I mean, there was some skepticism about it at the time as a response to the crisis, but actually Quite apart from the crisis, we we thought it was a good idea, but have made our proposal is more radical than um, the, the, what appears to be in the process of being um, a set up a sort of deeper set of reforms. And it was interesting to see the um, uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster's letter to the um, Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee um, uh, recently, where he talked about delivering a smarter centre of government. Uh, good and said that the cabinet office, the treasury, 
and the office of the prime minister, the new office would 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 be working closely on shared objectives. Well, that's a relief, um, but uh, um, that is a long way. That falls a long way short of the kind of integrated new office of the prime minister or prime minister's department that we envisaged. And uh, finally, sorry, you asked me uh, about the board. Um, we we too think that there, that, that there should be um, a, a board. I think that's a, a good idea. We wanted a broader whole public services board, board as part of the notion of redefining the public service so sort of broader than uh, uh, the civil service. I would, though, be deeply sceptical about a former cabinet secretary or any former permanent secretary serving on the board. And I think that would be sort of unusual to, in other organisations to say that somebody who had been running the organisation would then be breathing down the neck uh, of, of somebody who was currently trying to uh, run the organisation. Perhaps there are examples of, uh, of that, but I, I'm not sure any, 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 any incumbent would um, necessarily welcome that. And I think there would be a danger in kind of entrenching a conservatism, which is exactly what the, what the organisation doesn't need. There are plenty of um, ultra-conservative small-c figures um, uh, who are able to express their views about the civil service uh, usually from the platform of uh, uh, the House of Lords. And we very much enjoy listening to their important views, uh, but I'm less convinced that they should have a formal role in oversight or running of uh, a service that they once, a very long time ago, ran. Thank you, Nick. A very in enjoyable sort of provocation at the, at, at the end there. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, an illustration of the uh, sort of continuity of the civil service or a force for conservatism, I think there's a, there's a really uh, good debate there. And your points about... Do you open the Pandora's box uh, of legislation? Um, uh, I, I think we've come to the conclusion that yes, some of the, um, uh, the, the uh, problems that we've identified are sufficiently serious that it's worth grasping this nettle. Um, uh, take your points on that and, and really interesting points on the, on the board. We'll come, we'll come back to uh, a lot of those themes and questions, I think, but, but thank you, uh, Nick. Uh, policy, uh, policy? It's been done before. Pol Polly. <laughs> 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 With unoriginal and uh, uh, insulting. Sorry, Polly. Um, I don't think it's insulting, is it? No, no, no. It's no, been a nominated for Getting your name wrong. It's first, not like you first, called me doofus. Like... It's, not, it's not great, is it? But anyway, we'll move on. Um, uh, Polly, uh, not to forget the sort of policymaking side of this, though we'll come back. I saw you sort of nodding along to some of that. Um, uh, really enjoyed your um, uh, paper, I say recently, on the humble policymaker. And it influenced um, uh, quite a lot of what we were thinking about uh, here um, uh, as well, uh, trying to sort of blend that sort of classic, you know, how do you do good policy questions, joining up government, with your uh, really interesting uh, uh, thoughts about uh, particularly the sort of the, the, the process and the, the, the fact of coming together to reach a shared solution being as or more important than the, the actual solution you, um, you, you, you reach, you know, that not necessarily being a, a right answer. What, what do you make of how we've kind of navigated that, that terrain? So I want to say a quick word about the statutory role of the civil mm. service, because I think it's a really useful example, actually, of what I'd like to say about policymaking, in that I, I sort of agree with you that it might be really useful, and that this is you know, quite a, a nice set of potential rules for the civil service, and it being the Institute for Government, you've even drafted it in parliamentary language, and it, it looks sort of ready to go. And what it reminded me of a bit is something I once found in a cupboard uh, in the Liberal Democrat headquarters when they were moving out of Cowley Street, um, which was a constitution for the United Kingdom, uh, produced by a Liberal Democrat working group, chaired by, would you believe it, Andrew Adonis. 
uh, from like 92, 93. And it's a really interesting question as to how, how do you get to the point of agreement on this stuff? Because I think agreement actually matters more than the details. And you've already kind yep. of introduced that, that that's a sort of hypothesis that I have. And that's because one of the reasons why we might want a statutory role for the civil service is to defend it against people chopping and changing, breaking rules, mm -hmm. breaching norms. And the problem is that rules only matter if the people with the power want to follow them. And, and sometimes when we have rules, unwritten rules or informal rules like we have on a constitution or this question of what is it the civil service done, does, where there's you know, the sort of good chaps type theory and we, we think we understand it, but it's not codified because that's not really very English. And we think, well, actually, wouldn't it help to stop all this mess and chaos and people being nasty if we just wrote it down as rules? And I, I, you know, I think it's nothing better than wishful thinking, actually. And so the process for writing a constitution, a statute about the nature of the civil service, actually has to be a process that brings as many people, including people with power, people with normative power over people with power, i.e. people that the people with power care about their opinion, and, and, and citizens as well. Because in the end, there has to be a sense that we, the public, want to sanction people who break rules. If we don't care, they won't care. And so you have to think about that. Think about the process. What, what is it that you're trying to protect? There is some, of course, there's something really valuable about the civil service, but what would it take to develop a role for the civil service, whether it's written down in statute or written down in a cabinet manual or written down on somebody's napkin that feels authentic and is respected by the people who are gonna to have to abide by the boundaries it sets out, because that's the nature of rules, right, is that they come with boundaries and nobody likes boundaries. Um, and this government isn't alone with that. I remember there being a sort of scandal when, scandal, you know, a paper, an article in a newspaper, whatever, but when, you know, Blair papers were released, there's something to do with human rights. And he's like, why, the, why do we have to do all this human rights stuff? You know, governments don't like being bounded. Um, one of my favorite Boris Johnson quote, it was a sort of spokesperson quote or something, was like, he won't resign because he's a huge Democrat. <laughs> like, that's just, hilarious way of kind of framing the thing. But is that thing of like, I, I would love to break rules because it's what the people want. And in the end, you have to think about what would it take for the people to care about the rules? And the answer is probably a different process. Um, and that's what, kind of what I think about so much of our policy making. Um, and I was, honestly, I was so thrilled. I'm gonna have to send my trustees this because we've been trying to work out about how you measure impact. And for me, here I am in the, in the Institute for Government coming here from my scrappy little think tank, and it says, policymaking is not a process with a single right answer. It's messy, yes. And often the skill is in the consensus building and compromises needed to get things done. Oh, well, that's impact. Somebody listen to me. This is very exciting. Um, <laughs> because um, I, I, so, and I put in this paper a sense of the, I guess the, the personal incentives for so many people who go into policymaking is they want to make the world a better place. You know, we've lost Nick. Maybe he quit. There we go. <laughs> um, and, and they really like finding, solving problems. And, and I, I remember the one sort of memory that really sticks in my mind was sitting in some sort of corner room in the treasury, trying to puzzle out exactly how to allocate the pupil premium. 
And I don't know why it was all printed. Ian wouldn't have approved. But like we had all these different models all printed out and everyone was looking through all that. And it was so much fun, you know, to feel clever and to be like, oh, no, I, I realise that that's going to affect Bassett Law. Um, or, you know, it was... Because it, it, it is fun. But the problem is that when you've decided there is this kind of democratic de deficit around legitimacy... And I think that so much of the technocratic mindset assumes that government for the people is what we need. That if we make the right decision for people, they will somehow be grateful. And I think most of our kind of democratic history suggests that they are not. And that's partly because they don't get to experience sort of Terry Pratchett, Dominic Cummingsism. They don't get to experience the other trouser leg of history, the counterfactual. I think that's what you officially call it. They don't get to experience this other world in which the clever policymaker didn't make their life 0.1% better. And so, in the end, the fact that they haven't been involved in decision-making causes civic harm, in my view. And so I kind of lean into the thinking of uh, Tom Bentley, uh, former director of Demos, who wrote in 2004 about everyday democracy, about trying to disaggregate institutions, radical devolution, to get power and decisions to the level where people actually can be bothered to get involved, um, and where the decisions are small enough for people to get involved. Also. Shame to say it, Steve Hilton's uh, invitation to join the Government of Britain manifesto in 2010. You know, there was, there was something there about the idea that in the end a democracy is about all of us, not a bunch of clever people doing things for us. And if you look at the challenges that we face as a society, they require so much personal change. Net zero is one that Alex has mentioned. It, we have to change so much about our homes and our heating and the way we travel if you impose that on people, you will get resentment. Whereas if you build the solutions with people, which is slow and messy and perhaps doesn't come up with the optimized solution, you have consent, which means you can actually get ahead and get something done. Uh, and it's really great to see, alongside lots of other actually very sensible recommendations about policymaking, including about implementation, uh, that recognized, I think we need to build the skill set of humbleness in our policymakers and try and teach people like me who love being clever that bringing people along with you is more important than being right. Really uh, interesting. Thank you, uh, Polly. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take the impact ways uh, <coughs> in, uh, in, in that. Thank you for, uh, that, thank you for saying that. Um, uh, loads in there, which we will come back to, I, I think, with questions. And to give, give people in the room forewarning, for those who've struggled through the tube strike, I will, um, I'll come to the room after uh, Ian's made a contribution to get some questions and then, and then come to the ones that are already coming through on Slido, but keep them coming on Slido as, as well. I mean, Ian, your, your reactions to, to, to that, to um, the question of uh, accountability and particularly the sort of how best can you or can you define a sphere between ministers uh, or of ministers and of civil servants, the linkages, the, the sort of messy joins, but also to, to, to throw in a, an, another question. One of the things we talk about later in the um, statute report is, um, uh, is this point about uh, running things more effectively from the centre. Nick touched on it. Um, uh, and how uh, you know, you've, you've been a permanent secretary in the centre and uh, in a line department uh, and had oversight of the whole civil service. Um, this sort of stronger centre versus more authoritative departments debate. Be interested in your take on that as well. So Ian, a couple okay. of questions there. Um, we'll just deal with the statutory point first. I think I agreed very much with what Nick was saying. Um, be careful what you wish for. You could open Pandora's box here and end up with something much worse than 
we've currently got. And secondly, I'd want to know that the statutory, uh, the act that you propose is materially different and therefore better than the current CRAG Act, which seems to me to have most of what we, we want in it about impartial uh, civil service. And the word impartial is crucial here. Lots of people, I'm not in these august circles, but I see it in the press a lot, confuse the word impartial with independent. Yeah. And they are completely different in yeah. my mind. You know, we, we've always been an interdependent civil service between uh, the various components of the government, government itself, wider public sector and so on. Um, but nevertheless, the civil service must be impartial and impartial over time so that it can serve the government of the day when those administration sea changes. And I think we have all that in the CRAG Act. So I, I'm not sure that I would, uh, add, it would add too much to uh, legislate further. Um, the other thing I always used to say to ministers when they would say, I want to do X, let's, we need a bill. I'd go, well, why can't you do X without the bill? You know, what's stopping you from current legislation environment to do what you actually want to achieve in the wider world? And I think almost everything that you've talked about in terms of modernizing, reforming, improving the civil service can be done today underneath the current um, legislative framework. So I'd concentrate on what it is we want to do and then only at the end say, is there a legislative block now? And if there is, then, then fix it. That would be uh, my view on that. Um, I love the reports, but not least of which it sort of brought up so many happy memories of the past. And, you know, uh, uh, on the last point about doing stuff, I mean, in the Blair Brown years when I worked, we did the PMDU, Prime Minister's Delivery Unit. That was very groundbreaking. Um, public service agreements, that was your long-term look at turning money into outcomes. Um, capability reviews of all Whitehall departments, which were transformational mm -hmm. at the time. They got a bit stale after a few years, but at the time they were transformational. And the early um, Gershon reviews in, uh, in, in projects that morphed into the Major Projects Academy later on, or Authority later on. And then uh, when the coalition government was in, working with uh, Francis Morden, Danny Alexander in my case uh, primarily, you know, stronger functions at the center of government, the digital and program management, uh, using the, the power of the crown to do better on behalf of the whole of the country rather than just individual departments, particularly in commercial uh, terms, and introducing boards for government departments with independent NEDs on them. These were all very positive reforms that, that I think people bought into. And in between those two sets of reforms, the CRAG Act, was actually uh, mm. published uh, just at the, right at the end of the Brown government, I think. Wash up, yeah. Um, and, but it was cross-party, as, as, mm. as Nick and Polly were saying. It, was, it, it, it had agreement. And, and so I think you know, that was quite a, a powerful few years of, of really good reform on the civil service. And I think we need uh, another few years like that now because I think it's got a bit stale and a bit adversarial and a bit um, uh, weak in places. Um, in terms of... Uh, Going forward, therefore, I would, uh, I, I, I haven't um, uh, recently read, the, I did read the Smart Government report when it first came out, I haven't reread it, but the, 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 the particular emphasis Nick gave on, on strategic I thought was really, really important because that's what the centre of government can do. Um, the centre of government should not be trying to, to manage bedpans ringing around, you know, uh, wards of hospitals. They should be setting the strategic framework in which government is operating so that the government 
departments and the wider system of government, which is, we, we forget that 80% of public services are delivered through local government, health and educational bodies, not through central government. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's those, it's those uh, organisations can then implement within the broader strategy. Um, and then final comment on the board idea. Um, I'm very sceptical on this, I have to say. Um, we, we did, one, of, one of the things that Francis and Danny tried was to have a board for the civil service, and it, it didn't really work, in my opinion. And part of the reason it didn't work was nothing to do with the individuals who were all outstanding, and the intent was good. But at the end of the day, they're not the government, they're, and, and the government should be driving the policy and the strategic direction, and uh, the civil service should be implementing. I think where a board can help is in some of the capability type areas that, that it can look at, because it mustn't confuse its role you know, in policy terms. It should be thinking about capability for the civil service. Um, and so maybe a, you know, a, a, a renewed capability review program under a civil service board mm. could, could come out of that. But again, I wouldn't put that in statute because that's a solution that might fit a particular point in time and might not be uh, valid in five years' time. You might want to move to something else. And the final point on any board, it must be independently appointed and, uh, and, and like Nick was saying, no throwbacks. I mean, you know, it, if, I was, if I was the head of the Civil Service Cabinet Secretary, the last thing I'd want is my predecessor on the board. Or, yeah. or, I mean, either because you know, they, I would want to criticise what they were doing and feel hamstrung, or I want to be running the organisation as it is, not as it was. Yeah. And, um, and, and that, I think, is, is very important. Equally, I don't want government-appointed NEDs on the board. I want independent-appointed NEDs on the board. I want people who will be challenging of the government as much as they will be of the civil yeah. service. So I think those are, those are the, my initial thoughts on all of that. R really interesting and helpful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ian. Uh, I, th I think, uh, I mean, a couple of thoughts on, uh, on, on a number of those points. One is, um, I think on your board, just to be clear what we're saying, absolutely not policy. You know, government is government. This would be a capability mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, board. The interesting thing, I take all your points on the, um, uh, on the membership, uh, it's debates that we've been having. I do worry, though, that if you don't have some form of um, sort of civil service and, and, and uh, ministerial docking, it, it drifts away from what the government is. So we've been trying to kind of uh, 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 link the two um, uh, can I, together. Can I, can yeah, I yeah, yeah, sorry, just to come back on that. I think absolutely right to have ministerial involvement on it and absolutely right to have current civil service mm. Involvement yeah. on it. I mean, that's not the problem. It's, yeah. it's, it, um, and uh, the, 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 just to make sure that we don't lose this point, I think it's really important that the, the, the Prime Minister is and has always been, in my time anyway, the Minister for the mm. Civil Service. I really think that should remain because ultimately, you know, all power is drawn from the combination of the uh, Prime Minister and the Cabinet mm. Secretary in these situations. Yeah. That doesn't stop the Prime Minister deputing the day-to-day -day chairing of a board, but it mustn't be an abdication. And uh, it mustn't be, I don't care about it, so I'm going to hand it over there. It must be, I do care about it. This but person that's the challenge, yeah. yeah. isn't yeah. it? And, and, and if, the person, if, if the Prime Minister turns up occasionally to meetings, even if it's only mm. once a year, you know, to a board meeting, yeah. it matters. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and when I was doing the PMDU, I mean, if I went, 
anywhere into a health department or education department or something, I knew at the end of the day that the reason they were taking us seriously was because their Secretary of State was going to get in front of, as it was mm -hmm. then, Tony Blair and be hauled over the coals if, if they hadn't done it. And so they took us seriously. And if we'd yeah. just been a, an arm's length bit of government reporting to a relatively junior cabinet minister, they'd have just walked all over us mm -hmm. and ignored us. So I think that, 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 that joining up needs to happen. I am. Um I agree with that point in particular. It's a rare point of difference with the Commission on Smart Government, actually, about the Prime Minister remaining the Minister for the Civil Service. Um, the only other point I was going to make on your, your contribution with my slightly sort of awkward chairing and uh, uh, contributing uh, uh, role today um, is, uh, uh, is, is that the, uh, the important thing I think about the, um, uh, the board is that, that there is a civil service board at the moment, but it's internal and it is an internal board, perfectly good about running the civil service. What it doesn't answer is this accountability question that we've been trying to get to, get to grips with. So that's the, the really important thing for, um, for us. And also trying, again, we're not saying it's the final word on it by any means, but to find an objective and a way of describing the responsibilities of civil servants that takes us, takes us on in a, in a way. So almost for me, more than the board, it's that sort of defining the responsibilities point that, that, that gets to it. What I really uh, enjoyed in particular about the, uh, the, the three of your contributions was the fact that this requires a discussion, it requires a sort of uh, a settlement in a way. And one of the things that I know Nick and colleagues at the Commission of Smart Government, but we're also trying to do uh, today and over the coming uh, months is get that discussion going and sort of find a way of reaching that, that settlement. I'll come to the room uh, first, and then there are lots of questions uh, coming in, but who wants to go? Uh, if there is anybody. I'm going to go to Suzanne first. Um, got a microphone there. You don't have to stand up, do I? No. Yeah, great. But say who you are, um, if you don't mind. Suzanne Rain, independent person, formerly civil servant. Um, I wanted to ask a question about risk ownership, because I think that this actually is the heart of this question about accountability. It's not a surprise to you, I'm sure, Alex, that I'm hmm. asking about risk ownership. But no corporate would function without real clarity about who owned the risks. And that's not a tactical issue. It's, it's about strategic governance. And any organization, and the civil service should be a leading organization, should know what its risks are and who's responsible for them. And the, and the country should know what its risks are and who's responsible for them. So at the moment, we have risk registers. We have departmental ones. We have a national one. There are no risk owners beside the risks. And the question which hasn't been addressed or answered, which, which completely overlaps with, with your report is, do the ministers or the civil servants own those risks? Who is, going to, this, who is accountable if the risk escalates or mitigates? And who will feel accountable? And, and for me, this, this really important question is, you know, if, if what we're saying is, we, we can't move forward on this because in order to do so would involve a huge argument. What that indicates to me is an enormous amount of unresolved, unaddressed, unmitigated risk with no clarity about risk ownership. So the question really is, would, would the political leadership be ever prepared to accept that the risk owner was a senior civil servant? And do we think that our senior civil servants are actually psychologically ready to carry the responsibility of risk ownership? 
Thank you, Suzanne. Really interesting questions. I'm going to encourage short answers because I've got lots on the iPad and there are a few others in the room to come in. But Nick, I'll come to you on that. I, I think the question, Suzanne's question, does go to the heart of the debate. And um, uh, you draw attention in your in your report, uh, Alex, um, to the sort of two uh, recent uh, incidents where the responses were different. Um, uh, one was um, the the situation in the Department of Education uh, where you suggest that actually there was political uh, responsibility for um, uh, something that went wrong, but that the permanent secretary had paid the price. And then uh, a, a situation in the Home Office where a Home Secretary uh, uh, wasn't uh, re responsible for what had gone wrong, but, but, but paid a price. And we see in both of those examples the tensions uh, that exist. And in the end, I think it's going to be quite hard to codify this beyond the fundamental principle, which is that in the end, ministers have to be accountable. That is the essence, it seems to me, of our parliamentary democracy. And parliament will always expect that. And we can do more, it seems to me, to clarify where responsibility for execution lies. But you cannot erode the principle of ministerial accountability because in the end, somebody is going to have to stand in front of a dispatch box and, 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 and explain that something has gone wrong and may have to take uh, responsibility for that, even though it wasn't their decision or what they uh, wanted uh, to happen. That is just in the nature of the difference, it seems to me, between a government and a, and a business uh, and a corporate. It doesn't mean that you can't try and be clearer about responsibility for uh, execution and build in sharper accountability uh, for, for deliver, delivery. But that can't be done at the expense of that fundamental principle of parliamentary and ministerial accountability. That, thanks, Nick. It's, I'm really interested. There's, there's, I won't repeat it because it's in the report, but the uh, distinction between responsibility and accountability, I think, yeah. really important in that in that context. Polly, do you want a, a quick response? I, I mean, I mostly just feel slightly out of my depth because you're <laughs> clearly talking from a, uh, a position of real expertise about strategic risk management, and I, I would love to talk to you because, you know, it, it sounds fascinating. I guess to reinforce what Nick says, I think about the NHS and the Lansley reforms. And the Lansley reforms, the motivating thought really for Andrew was, wouldn't it be great if the democratic accountability was about choosing the health outcomes we want? And what we will do is we will set a framework of what we want and then we will put NHS England into the position of responsibility for delivering against them. And then they will be accountable to us and to parliament together. And what happened is that first of all, parliament wouldn't permit that legislation and the transfer of responsibility or, or kind of risk ownership. Um, and, and even the kind of the transfer that did go on is now being completely unpicked. Because in the end, there is, I think, as Nick says, this sort of gravitational pull back to the minister, who the one who stands behind the dispatch box. And, and what interests me is what... I do think ministers would sometimes quite like to be able to throw a civil servant under the bus if they could to save their skin. And I think that's probably... Bad instinct, but um, but but sometimes actually, you know, you've appointed the wrong person and they muck it up, and you need to be able to appoint somebody new, and that's reasonable actually. But but what what's the shift that would enable actually the public to think differently, to think that it's not the minister, it's the head of NHS England, to whom they should have 
that address their, their concerns. I, I genuinely don't know. Or, or should it be? Ian, do you want to come yeah. in on that? Uh, to coin a phrase from 2010, I agree with Nick <laughs> and Polly. <laughs> I think, I think, I think yeah, great. That, that's, we should great. move Thank on. you. I, um, let's uh, stay in the room, and then I will come to there. And I know see Jill wants to come in as well. But Thank you. It's Chris Smythe from The Times. I just wanted to ask you a bit about the culture of the civil service, which isn't much in the report, but it is something the current government certainly feels quite strongly about. You know, some of it for political show, some of, but some of it not, it does seem to have a genuine sense that the worldview of the, the current civil service is drawn from too narrow a section of the population. You know, to, to what extent is that uh, a, a problem generally? If it is, is there anything that can be, can be done about it? And you know, given often the sort of day-to-day -day culture of an organisation is more important than the sort of formal structures, how do you try and use that to, to, to achieve what you want? Or do you just give up and say, that's not something we can, we, we can really legislate for <coughs> in a literal or metaphorical sense and then and, and leave it alone? Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Really interesting. I mean, it's uh, one of the things that got us into this territory is that you, you talk about, it's quite easy to talk about culture in an abstract way. It often comes down to incentives and uh, power structures and so on, which was partly what led us into this, uh, into this sort of um, route. But um, uh, Ian, you go a commendably brief uh, answer uh, last time, and that speaks a bit to your uh, first uh, civil service commissioner role as well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I sorry, I didn't catch your name, Chris. I mean, culture is to me much more dominant feature of, of reform than almost anything else. Uh, I think if you can get if you get the right culture in place, the reforms uh, happen naturally because people know what what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it, and it's how we do things around here is as important. Uh, as anything, and I think going back to some of the points Nick and Polly have been making, if you get the strategic framework right, and then the culture is one of, of delivering on that, those strategic objectives, then I think p people out there behave in the way that you want them to. I think the best example of a team is how it operates when you're not around, and if it does the right things when you're not around, then it's a good team, and, and, and that's what I think we want to uh, be trying to achieve. I think that comes back to leadership, um, uh, strategic leadership um, from all of the ministers and the, and the leading civil servants in this particular case. Um, and uh, it also comes from uh, recruitment policies to get the diversity into the organisation that you want. And it is a criticism of the civil service that it's, at least in its upper echelons, it tends to be narrowly drawn. One of the things I'm most proud of of what we achieved in the Civil Service Commission in the last five years was opening up the boundaries to the civil service to attract people from really difficult backgrounds. So we started to recruit ex-offenders direct, literally coming out of prison and into the civil service. Uh, we, you know, ex-military veterans coming back from combat, people from care homes, you know, into the civil, people who would never have seen the civil service as a, as a career option suddenly were being given the opportunity to work there, and some of them will, will go off and do other things, but a lot of those will stay, and that will infuse a culture change in the organization as well. So, um, and the final point about the culture is the geographic one. It's really, really hard to be uh, a, a fully UK-wide civil, well, in GB-wide, I think, the Northern Ireland civil service is separate, GB-wide civil service if, if basically the center of power is in Side the M25, and um, so the whole devolution of working in the regions of the country. I, I live in, I've lived in Manchester for 30 odd years, and um, it feels different when you're up there from 
from when you're down here, and I think that's, that's really important. So I think the, the levelling up agenda, or whatever it would be in a future government, is, is critically dependent on distributing the power centres around the country, I think. Thanks, Ian. I'll come to uh, Nick and then Polly, but I'm also going to kind of pull in a question from Ben Yong uh, at Durham University, um, which is related but slightly different question. Does the civil service have a personality separate from ministers? Uh, not clear from your proposed statute. Should it? It suggests the civil service has an independent basis from which they say no minister, or to put it another way, it suggests a clash of accountability. That's absolutely at the heart of one of the sort of constitutional questions, if you like, that we've been trying to grapple with and find a find a way through in, in, in these um, papers. But the um, sort of culture point, but also the kind of clash of accountabilities point, uh, Nick and then Polly, Nick. Uh, well, that's, I think that's rather an interesting additional um, point that's being made by, by Ben, because I don't think that you can see the issue of culture as being one um, exclusively for uh, the, the, the civil service. And, uh, you know, if you think of uh, government as a whole, which is, um, uh, the civil service uh, serving the government of the day, the creation of the right culture for the whole is important. And that, I think, does go back to clarity of um, objectives and uh, the strategic uh, clarity uh, that I think uh, the civil service find most problematic where it's absent. And uh, certainly having worked in or around government before and then doing so uh, 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 again. You know, I watch the, 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 the civil service at its best where, where it is absolutely clear what is wanted. Uh, and uh, I think uh, part of achieving the right culture is to achieve that alignment. That's different to um, saying that the, uh, uh, the, the civil service must agree with everything that's being proposed. It's the civil service's duty to set out what the problems uh, obstacles, challenges uh, uh, might be. But having that clarity uh, is, I think, essential. And I think where things can become most problematic, it's where uh, uh, that doesn't uh, exist. And um, I, I just also strongly agreed with what Ian said about uh, leadership and, uh, and recruitment. It's one of the areas that we particularly focused on in the Commission for Smart Government. We had what I think was a very strong paper on talent and talent management and wanted to see a considerable beefing up uh, of um, uh, capability within the civil service in terms of talent management function at the centre of, um, of government, including a, a, a beefed up role for the civil service uh, commission itself. You know, we looked at a lot of um, other sort of big organisations and the, 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 the amount that they, uh, of resource that they invest in uh, having a capability at the centre to secure and then train and equip the right people. And uh, I think it's that prior point about whether we're investing enough in identifying the right people and, and bringing them in to use to use to use a complex and to headhunt them yeah. uh i i i'm not we felt that much more ought to be done uh, uh in 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 that respect so i think there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of leadership uh and uh recruitment and talent uh, uh, uh management and uh i don't think we should leave that point because i think it's fundamental to addressing the capabilities and skills gaps that there are uh, in, in the service. Thanks, Nick. Polly? I think Nick is right that you, 
the culture of a, a department is extraordinarily shaped by its ministers and what they permit, what they promote. I don't mean in terms of you know, actual promotions, but just what the incentives they create for both behavior and, uh, and work. I, I think of examples like you know, when the Treasury uh, wouldn't, weren't allowed to meet with any officials from number 10 without a special advisor present. You know, that, well, that's a culture that we don't trust people in another department, even the Prime Minister's department, because you know, information shouldn't be shared. You know, that creates a set of incentives. And I, I also think it, that's particularly true in Downing Street. You know, when I was there, we recruited this supposed sort of coalition policy unit of civil servants. Uh, and you know, we hired nine people. Three of them were old Etonians, and only one was a woman. And the woman was Susan Ackland Hood, who was basically dragged off maternity leave by like persuasion and like begging. Because every other woman who was approached basically said, I don't know, right there, too much machismo. And again, like uh, th that's a culture that comes from from the, the top, actually, from, from the expectations, you know, what does the leadership of ministers look like? And I, I think, you know, the IFJ has done lots of really good work on how to train and develop ministers as leaders. But, you know, there's a problem uh, which you can't really talk about or complain about, which is there in, you know, Isabel Hardman's book about why we get the wrong politicians, is that the incentives for getting involved in politics kind of suck at the moment. Um, you know, good people like Nick... Buggered off to the House of Lords, you know. <laughs> um, and, and a whole bunch of other, a generation of really interesting, capable conservatives either gave up on it, especially women, or got chucked out. Uh, and, you know, who, who, who would do it? It's a genuine puzzle to navigate the complexities of internal party politics to get to the point of being an MP. Mm -hmm. at, gr at great personal risk, at great financial risk. You know, there are so many MPs who basically personally bankrupted themselves to get elected. And then to the point about culture and actually just picking up on Ian's point, honestly, like, it's totally stupid to have parliament in London. That building is crumbling to individual parliament atoms. We cannot, like, what are we doing? We have to move. You want to reset the culture. You ha London would recover within a year from the, the relocation of our parliament and the centre of our government. That, fine, make it a museum. Make that place a set of staterooms, you know, like they have in New York for meeting trade delegations. It's completely, you want to reset things. And ministers are being totally inconsistent because on the one hand they're saying proximity matters, you need to get off your peloton and back to the office. And on the other, they're saying proximity doesn't matter, everyone can move to Darlington. I mean, make up your mind. Nevertheless, I think that proximity does matter. Uh, and and you, what you need to do, you cannot have a country that has its economic centre and its political centre within one mile of e each other without being fundamentally economically imbalanced. Okay, yeah. If we want to correct that, if you actually want to level up, move Parliament. Thanks, Polly. As we admire the wallpaper behind, um, behind Nick. Um, not, not to prolong Ian, very quickly, it'll be done very, very soon. The one, there was one point behind, I think it was Ben's question, should the civil yeah. service have an independent view? Absolutely not. I don't even know what that, what that would be. Um, there's 400 and odd thousand people in the civil service, and I'm sure individually they cover every uh, perspective on every subject. The civil service should always support the government of the day, whatever the government mm -hmm. of the day's views are, but what it should do is put forward the evidence and pros and cons and, and do so behind the scenes. Yeah. And that, to me, 
is, is the crucial role, yeah. and that's, that's, that's the culture of the organisation that we want to create. It's, it's an interesting question, which I've slightly changed my mind on in terms of the... I, I certainly shared that view three years ago, but I've, responsibility to future governments, responsibility to the state, it's one of the things we're sort of playing around in here. Jill, Jill Rutter. I'm Jill Rutter. I'd better be from King's College London for these purposes. <laughs> I um, actually want to pick up exactly that because I completely I agree with Ian the civil servant shouldn't have an independent policy view. But if you're going to legislate for the civil service, do you not actually want to do it to put the civil service potentially at more distance from ministers and give the civil service a new set of duties and responsibilities to the public? Um, for example, upholding the quality of information that is released by government, uh, duties around standards, uh, potentially building on accounting officer duties and making them more acute for a wider range of things about the quality of advice they're giving. And I think that would change the culture to make the civil service feel more responsible and more professional for the advice that it gives. So not to have an independent policy view, but a whole bunch of other responsibilities and put a bit more clear whatever colour water between them and the government of the day. Thank you, Jill. Really interesting. I'm going to... I'm conscious I've been failing my duty to, uh, to uh, bring in questions from uh, Slido as well, so I'm just going to add one from Colin Tolbert because I think it's an important one. He points out that we don't uh, cover devolution in any sort of detail or the uh, governments in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland in this. Uh, uh, one of the points that we've grappled with is uh, just, you know, to the extent to which there should be a single unified civil service in... Uh, uh, UK, Scotland, uh, and Wales, at least. So, interested in views on that as as well. But um, uh, Nick, on, on on Jill's point, and then devolution, if you have a moment. But quick fire, please. Uh, well, first, I just want to say, to Polly, that I stand ready to move to York. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'll settle for York. Um, uh, no, I I, I I I actually agree with much of what, uh, in fact, everything that Polly said. But I, I, it's it doesn't find universal favour. Um, amongst uh, my uh, colleagues, let's put it no, high, no higher than that. Um, uh, however, I, I just want to sort of disagree quite profoundly with what with what Jill said and the idea that to quote her, you should put clear coloured water between the civil service and the government of the day. No, you shouldn't. The civil service serves the government of the day. Of course, there are areas where it's important that the civil service. Um, is the guardian of certain things, you know, propriety and and uh, and uh, uh, and so on. So I understand the point that Jill was making, but this is exactly what makes me nervous about the proposal that the civil service should be put on a statutory footing. That there would be this kind of uh, attempt. You can't establish the civil service as some some kind of sort of competitor to the democratically elected uh, a, a government, where you have an elected politician saying this is what we want to do, and somebody else saying I am empowered to say no to you. Uh, and uh, uh, because we, we we happen to think, with all of our wisdom, that we think it, you know this is a uh, this is a bad idea, and defining sufficiently narrowly those areas that Jill wanted to um, uh, to hand to the civil service and say nobody can touch you when you when when you say uh, the following things, um, I think would be would would be very difficult. So I you know actually Jill has helped to encapsulate for me exactly why. Uh, we would need to be much clearer about what it is we were try trying to achieve before uh, moving to putting the civil service on a statutory footing. Because if statutory footing means uh, independent and separate footing, then I think in principle that's wrong. Um, 
Uh, Quickfire answers. There's a question from Anonymous, uh, and it, it li links into what we were just talking about and what Nick just said. What can we learn from the parts of the public service that are already on a statutory basis, statutory office holders, uh, and uh, so on? Um, Ian, and then Polly for the final word, and then we'll wrap up. Ian. Um, I think statutory footing for uh, the appointment system is crucial. Um, I, I found that in the Civil Service Commission role. Without that, I would have come under ridiculous pressure to appoint the wrong sort of people to the civil service roles. Um, and uh, we contrast that with other bits of the system that are not on the statutory footing for appointments, and it becomes uh, a, a sort of circus of who's in power at the moment, puts their own people in, and then they're all wheeled out and new lots come in later on. So I think if you want a long-term strategic impartial civil service, you protect the um, uh, appointment system is the single most important thing. And Craig already does that. And for me, that's why I think uh, we can, uh, we can move, live with that. I think also on the um, uh, uh, civil service code, I think the civil service code is strong. You know, the four, the four key words that are in the act and in the code, you know, uh, are really important. And again, I think that's, that's strong. You could add to that, but those, those give it strengths that I think you can build on. Um, in the rest of the system, uh, I, I, I mean, public appointments, I feel very nervous about. I, I feel a lot of public appointments have become politicized mm -hmm. or cronyized or whatever in a way that um, statutorily governed appointments haven't, and that would be the most important thing from my point of view. Thanks, Ian. And then Polly, finally, and also the benefits of, you know, sort of running the civil service and uh, how you might uh, use some of this to kind of leverage better policy outcomes uh, in, in the end. All of, that just, All of that in 30 seconds. <laughs> We're touching on these fundamental questions about you know, who guards the guards. And uh, in the end, I think we have to find a way to get a constitution uh, of some, that, that, that sets boundaries in a way that maintains public pressure on government to respect those boundaries and not try and just ignore them or legislate their way around them. You know, we had a massive constitutional crisis uh, at the beginning of this year. And, you know, we've rightly forgotten it because more important things are happening. Uh, but, you know, the, the Prime Minister's office and the, 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 actually the palace, you know, or at least Prince Charles's office, both under investigation by the police for potentially breaking the law. And huge questions then about a statutory office holder, the police officers, and their ability um, to hold power to account. You know, we are reminded, actually, by Russia's behaviour in Ukraine that you can have all sorts of laws and Geneva Conventions, but in the end, power is power. And it, it, you have to think about what creates real limits on power, uh, including, um, including normative power. And I, I, in a way, I think that, that those, those are really deep and fundamental questions for us to ask if we are to protect and restore um, democracy, which is quite a gloomy place to end really and in the interim um let's just have lots of nice civil servants <laughs> well, so I, I, just, well, I don't know where to I'm end gonna, that's cheerful no, so i'm just going to well, give up I'll leave gonna, it to you i'm going to cut you off there and uh, save you the uh, uh, save you the problem of doing that um uh, thank you very much to the panel uh, lots of questions apologies to all of those i uh, uh, didn't uh, get through particularly on um, uh, on slido because there were lots coming through the uh, the theme that came uh, through that was 
uh, the need for a discussion and a debate about this. This is what we're trying to, uh, trying to do about um, both the sort of effectiveness and the legitimacy, the authority and accountability and the themes that were coming through today. So um, a, a variety of nuanced views expressed, uh, expressed there, but I think that's a common, uh, a common position for all of us. Thank you very much. Um, uh, uh, more uh, Institute for Government uh, events uh, and uh, reports on our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Uh, do keep in touch. Uh, we hope to see some of you at least in the building again soon, as well as uh, online. Thank you. Thank you very much.